This episode of the 343 podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics is offering you an additional 10% discount because they know that you are serious about high-quality soccer products if you are listening to this show. Training balls from Bounce Athletics can be customized with your logo and your color scheme and will only cost you about $15 to $20 per ball. And if you compare similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select, those would be in the $50 to $60 range. Now, I've personally tested the balls from Bounce Athletics. They feel great. They look great. They roll great. They hold air, which is super important. They are legit, and I highly recommend them. To top everything off, Bounce Athletics will send you complimentary mock-ups of what your balls will look like with your logo on them. Just email your logo to info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. And remember to mention 343 so you get that additional 10% discount when you place your order. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Michael Prunty is a college and high school soccer coach from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He found 343 around the same time that I did, and we both estimated that to be 2009, late 2009. But over the years, Michael and I have exchanged messages and tweeted back and forth. But this conversation you are about to hear is the first time we actually spoke to each other. You're going to hear Michael talk about coaching education. He has some strong feelings about the way that we teach the game here in America and specifically how we teach it to teachers. And he went as far as starting his own website to share his own thoughts about coaching education and about his own journey. Here are a few lines from his website. And I quote, the purpose is to develop a site for myself that I can document and share my continued growth as a coach. At this point in my coaching journey, I felt so isolated and was searching for places to grow and be mentored. And I had grown disenchanted by the current coaching education setup. I had completed my courses through NSCAA and felt those courses really helped me to develop my earlier methods and also provided me the tools to examine the why behind my work. They provided me with a base to work from, but that is not enough for a coach to reach their potential. Informal education through watching others' coaches' work, social media, and personal reflection has proven to be just as important in my growth as a coach. End quote. You can find links to Michael's website and to his social media channels by visiting 343coaching.com. I've linked to those uh, on the website. And I also should mention, too, that one of Michael's former players, Mandy Pocho, has already been on this podcast. And it was because of Michael that Mandy was uh, encouraged to reach out to us when she first moved to California to start her coaching journey. And she actually made the drive from the Bay area down to orange County, just to hang out with us and barbecue with the, with the entire three, four, three crew. That was a, a funny day. Um, we were recording a press conference between uh, Danny and Joey. Some of you guys might remember us releasing that. Um, but yeah, that was the day that we met Mandy. Uh, you can find that episode on three, four, three coaching as well. Actually, I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. If you like this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with other coaches. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. And if you're feeling super nice, give the show a five-star rating. That would also mean the world to me. 
if you would really, really, really like to support the 343 podcast, the best way to do that is by joining the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program. I've been a member of that program since it launched. And for those of you that are wondering, yes, uh, the program launched before this podcast existed. So I was a member before I was hosting this podcast for the company. Uh, the 343 coaching membership helped me learn about possession-based soccer and has added tremendous value to the teams that I've coached and to my own personal education. But the the best feature, the best benefit of this entire program is that it's a simple program that doesn't confuse you or bog you down with excess or unnecessary information. It is just the gold nuggets. That's that's it. Uh, the 343 membership program teaches you a proven possession-based methodology, which comes directly from one of the best coaches in American soccer. And when you sign up, you get instant access to videos of real games and real training sessions to help you learn the possession-based soccer coaching methodology. And you also get 24-7 access to eBooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and there's also the exclusive members-only forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. So you get all of that for just $295, which is an incredible deal and a fraction of the price of what other coaching education courses cost. To learn more about the benefits and all the features available in the program, you can visit 343coaching.com. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right. That's it for the intro. I hope that you are ready for this episode with Michael Prunty. Hello? Hey, Michael. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Doing good, man. Doing real good. Got my coffee. Listen to my little uh, my little pregame uh, music that I always have on to do my sound check. So I'm good to go, man. So you're gonna go get you got up out of bed and off Twitter long <laughs> enough to get your coffee made. I did, I did, just enough time. Just yeah, well, good, well, good. Yep, uh, dude, good to finally talk to you. Yeah, you as well. Uh, for sure, definitely. I know we've traded back and forth a few times on Twitter through the <laughs> through the many years. Yeah, for years, man, for years, and and it's kind of funny too. I was thinking about it that. You know, I had one of your apprentices on before I had you on, which I, yeah, I thought so was kind of funny. Yeah, and I think, have you, did you have um, Simon Murphy on from Ref Live? Mm, no, you know what, I, I, how, how did that happen? Simon reached out to me about uh, uh, something about refereeing, and he actually interviewed me for, for that. Oh, website. that's what it was. Yeah. Because I, I coach Simon. That's so funny. That is so funny how yeah. small the soccer world is. I know. I thought that was like when I, I, I came across something where you had talked to him and I was like, That's, yeah, I, when Simon came to the United States and played in the IA um, for two years, I was doing my GA at the school he was at. So I, I gave Simon his first tour of um, the budding metropolis of Davenport, Iowa. So yeah, definitely small world. Super small world, man. It's the... I've talked about it before, but like the six degrees of separation in soccer, it's it's not even that much, man. It's probably three degrees of separation, and you're to the top. Oh yeah, yeah, most definitely. And especially especially with um with social media now too, because people strike up just like we have, you know, relationships, friendships, um, mentorships, apprenticeships, all kinds of stuff. And, and yeah, you don't, no, you don't even have to yeah. know the people. It's just you just know them digitally, and and you know they're such a huge part of your life. 
Yeah, I think that's probably one of the things that's accelerated probably my growth as a coach is just social media and how easy it is to access people, you know, especially where I'm at, um, in the middle of the country, with, which could be considered a bit of a soccer wilderness. Um, yeah, the ability to reach out to people that, you know, have different experiences has helped me immensely. I'm going to share a funny story. So the other day, one of my friends that I, I went to high school with, um, she went and saw a very famous and very, very well-known comedian, um, Nikki Glazer. And mm-hmm. Nikki has like a morning radio show or a morning podcast. I can't remember exactly what it is, but, but my friend listens to, to Nikki all the time, apparently. And yeah. she'll, she'll like walk around the house and, and she'll tell her husband like, Hey, like today Nikki talked about this or Nikki said this, or they'll be out doing something. And, and my friend will be like, well, Nikki said this about this. And so long story short, she ended up going backstage and, and got a chance to meet Nikki Glazer and, and her husband shared that story with Nikki. And, and it's just funny because, you know, they obviously don't know each other, but because my friend just listens to her, her show all the time, it, it, it she feels like she like she knows her personally yeah and and so uh to to top everything off after after that weekend show nikki went back to her doing her radio show and talked about it on the on the radio show and then my friend's listening to it you know as she as she normally does and so you know there she is actually talking about uh my friend on the radio show it was just like a like just a funny just you know digital world um, meeting yeah. real world environment. It, it just, I don't know, tripped me out when I, when I heard, when I heard about that, I thought, I thought it was really fun. Yeah, no, and I think the, the cool thing now is that you're starting to, as you start to actually meet these people that you've known digitally for so long, you start to really interact with them, how much more there is to them and, and what you think you know about them and how much more you actually have to gain from, you know, meeting them outside of this, the digital world that we've all grown so comfortable in. It's a very good point too, and and there's actually somebody else that that reached out to me recently that just went through our free course, yeah. and um, one of the comments was like was about Gary and like wow like Gary's really well spoken and 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 very calm and cool and collected and that's not the vibe that I get from his Twitter feed, and it's like yeah well, yeah like it's it, he's a human being and and so when when you talk about um, how somebody is offline versus online, it, it can be, you know, completely different. And people can read a tweet with whatever, you know, tone is in their head, whatever mood that they're in. And, and that's going to yeah. influence the way that they receive, uh, you know, the message a lot of times. And so there's a lot of times like where, even where I tweet something, you know, and, and it's kind of like in, in my brain, it's coming out as like kind of happy go lucky and very light and positive. And then somebody just takes it and twists it. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, like no yeah. way, like we like I don't agree with that at all. It's like, well, I don't know if you're interpreting it correctly. Well, or even you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I think I have this moment of brilliance, and I tweet something, mm-hmm. and it just like falls flat. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, <laughs> obviously, and, and, and in my brain, I thought it was really good, so I thought I needed to share it, but no one else felt felt similar. So um, fair enough. Yeah, I can. I'll carry on, and we'll try again tomorrow with something maybe a little <laughs> bit more earth shattering. So. Oh, it's funny. I know. It's just like, I guess that would be the equivalent of like a, a comedian going up on stage with a joke that they'd worked on. And then it just, you know, zero laughs, just complete bomb. And it's like, oh, yeah. okay. Crickets. Uh, next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You uh, always have a couple people that are, are going to like it no matter what. They're like your biggest fan. So yeah. it's like having your mom always tell you you did a good job. So yeah. um, I always get, you know, you get that one same person that likes everything. You're like, all right, at least I got that person still yep. with me. So that's funny. Um, yeah, man, you're you're just you're you're making my brain go to a different a, a bunch of different spots right now, and, and 
Yeah. That reminds me of an article by Kevin Kelly and it's called 1000 true fans. And it's, and it's a great article. If, if people aren't familiar with it, I'll, it, I'll make a note actually to link to it. So Kevin Kelly, um, but it's like if you're if you're looking to start like a like a small business or a podcast or, or anything like that, like you don't need to reach a million people anymore these days. All you need is, you know, a, a, a small amount of people. So you need to find like your true fans like and, and the comment about like your mom uh, always liking and, and, yeah. and supporting whatever you do. It's like those are the, the 1000 true fans are are going to be the people yeah. that, that buy or support or go to your concert or whatever. Um, no matter, no matter how good you are, how old you are or whatever. So, um, it's a, it's yeah, a good, interesting no, article. I, yeah. I think, you know, even like when I, oh, I don't know how many years ago, I mean, like two or three now I, I started a blog really just for my own like personal like benefit to like force me to put stuff down so that I have to like, actually, if I'm going to put this in public, I've got to make sure at least it makes sense and kind of challenge myself and how I, you know, I'm able to verbalize what I want to do on the field. And, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting to see like, you know, maybe three or four people really take a lot of value from it. And, and if I've been able to like at least help three or four people, you know, maybe it's not the thousands that, you know, one would maybe hope for to reach, but you know, you've still been able to positively affect, you know, if it's two or three people, you still helped or, or help kind of think someone or help someone change the way they think about the game. So I'm with you. I'm, um, those big goals and the thousands and millions of, of views have, have quickly diminished. And I'm happy if, you know, there's just one or two people that I'm able to at least connect with on uh on some type of common ground when it comes to the game. What were, what were some of the things that you wanted to hash out when you're writing, when you're writing that stuff, when you started to collect your thoughts, I guess that'd be digitally. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I had this like idea of how, how I wanted my teams to play. And it's something that I know that's never finished. And it's something that I've kind of, I have probably four or five different documents that try to like spell it out that I get started and, and then I continue to adapt and, and I just kind of sat in that place where I just didn't have anything that I could could really point to. So I was like, you know, that, I need that. I need to be able to um, to put something out that I could stand behind and, and actually kind of put some pressure on me to actually complete some thoughts. Um, how I wanted my my team to play. So that's what I thought of the blog. I was like, you know, is there a way that you know I could, as the mood hits me and different things come up in training or in games or in just in my experiences, can I get out and like speak to those, but also always bring them back to how I view the game, my vision of the game. So is everything still connected to how I want my teams to play? Uh, and so that was kind of the start of it. It obviously kind of ballooned into, um, and I know you guys are big supporters of being able to put out some of your product and what you do on the field. And um, I was able to get some videos and get those posted and then uh, started filming a little bit of training here and there. And it's just a good way for me to like kind of back up with some of my ideas and actually put video to it. And I'll be honest, like, you know, life gets in the way and I, my second kid is now just one. So I'm probably not doing as much as I'd hope, but uh, it was a good tool for a good couple of years to at least really force me to think about what I'm doing and, and be able to back that up with some type of video proof. Did putting all that stuff in, into writing, did that make it easier for you to talk about it when you either you're with, you know, with your teams or with your other coaches or when you... Uh, and I don't know if you do this, but you having conversations with other people that you that you know in the soccer world. Did it did it make it easier to talk about your philosophy, your vision, your strategies? Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think it like you know anything. Um, you know, the more the more I write about it, the more the more you have to think about it. The cleaner your your message gets. Um, you know, you kind of 
some of the fluff gets taken out and it becomes very clear as, as far as the message you send your players. Um, and, and often the same stuff I write is the same stuff I'm telling my, my players in a, in a pregame or a pregame or a preseason presentation on our, on our style of play. Um, it obviously is in my coaching points and when I'm talking to the team, um, same reason why, you know, we did on the same, you know, same training exercises often. And so my delivery gets cleaner, um, when I'm trying to hit those coaching points or try to explain how this fits into our larger, you know, view of the game. Um, the more I do it, the more, the cleaner the vision gets and the cleaner obviously it is for my players to understand it. So yeah, writing served that same purpose. Like the more I wrote it, the more I kind of continued to hit on it. Obviously my ability to then, you know, communicate that with my players got easier and easier. This is this is kind of a weird thought, but did writing and, and, and talking about all, all the ways that, you know, you want to coach or the way that you want your teams to play, did that also help you um did that also help you decide what type of information you were you were gonna consume from there on out? And and I guess maybe I should put some context around that. Like uh oh actually no, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to. I just maybe maybe just react to what I just said. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because, so my wife is completing her PhD and in her dissertation phase. So I get a lot of, we have a lot of conversations about biases and that's her kind of her area of study is stigma and bias and, um, you know, how we kind of put our blinders on to only see what we want to see to just reaffirm our thoughts on the game. Um, and I think the more aware I am of that, like how I, how I want to see the game and how I often could possibly ignore other thoughts or other ways of playing the game, being more aware of that again is kind of twofold. It obviously it makes sure that I'm not so blind to uh, different ideas, um, but at the same time I'm still grounded in my principles. So I think you know it has very much changed how I consume information online. But at the same time, it just has made me more of a wise consumer. Um, I'm not going to ignore something, but I definitely look at it in a way of um, understanding like what from the what can I take from it to either affirm or, you know, to, to affirm what I already believe, then obviously what does that do to challenge my ideas? Um, do my ideas stand up to, you know, and you've seen that some of the research about anything from unopposed passing to, you know, U.S. soccer, sometimes view on, on rondos. And like, I, I need to hear that because I need to then be able to take what I do and, and justify or be able to feel good about what I'm doing um, is the right thing for my players. And if I ignore it completely, I'm I'm not doing my players' development any justice as well. I kind of compare it to going to buy a car, and when you know when you're buying your very first car, you don't really know much about cars. You don't know how the sales process goes. You don't know like all the tricks yeah. and, and tools that a car salesman has and and whatnot. So you you might ultimately you know not get the car of your dreams when you buy your first car. But when you buy your third or fourth car you know exactly what you're looking for and you know, you, you know about all the other cars and what all the other cars offer mm-hmm. and, and all the other brands offer, but you are looking for something very specific in what you want. That's going to fit your needs and your lifestyle. And, and, and yeah, so it, 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 that's, you know, one, one comparison that I feel like people might relate to because I think we've all, we can all recall like the first time we bought a car and how clueless we were. Um, yeah. And then, and then what you kind of learn along the way. And a lot of coaches are, are in that same, that same spot, like when either you're brand new to coaching or brand new to a team or to a club or, or whatever, like that feeling of, you know, not really knowing what it is or that you're doing, something that yeah. we're all very familiar with. And then 
as you kind of get grounded and, and, and you get the experience and, and you put your thoughts down and, and, and you kind of become rooted in, in your principles, well, then all of a sudden, like all the other stuff starts to make sense and you're able to filter, okay, I need this, I don't need that. And I think that's really that's a really big and important step for a lot of coaches to, to get to instead of just consuming yeah. and letting everything come into your brain and be, and, and be influenced by everything. It's like, no, I don't need to be influenced by everything. I, I only need to be influenced by these certain things. So, Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to this episode of the 343 podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. And this is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever you're at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up in a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. Uh, just, just knowing like, you know, if you know, two, three, four, five years in, however long it takes a coach, like there's no, there's no set, you know, time frame or time frame. But, you know, at, at some point, I think it's a big step for coaches to get to, to get to a point where they know how to filter what's important and what's not. Yeah, I know. And I think I'm like of the age, like I was right on the cusp of like when soccer, like coaching information just became so easily accessible on the internet. Uh, and, and I was, I'll admit like right away, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I was just, I had like Dropbox multiple Dropbox accounts full of just, you name it, sessions. Like, it just, I collected things. I was purely a collector. Um, I, I didn't even know what I had. Uh, and I was you know, sharing it with everyone just on my Dropbox storage to share, you know, build more so I could keep taking stuff in. Um, and it's funny how, you know, in the last, like probably it's been four or five years since I've even looked at it. But, you know, right away, that's all I just was collecting. Um, I didn't know why or what I was looking at, but man, I thought I was really making some, you know, some big steps in my coaching just because of all this information I had. But yeah, the ability just to pretty much push all that away. And, and that was kind of, you know, around the time that, you know, three, four, three blog really kind of came into my like in front of me. And this was just how to clear out the clutter and focus what you're doing on, you know, just a core set of ideas and exercises and completely just clean up what you're doing and, and, and stick to stick to those things and not, and not get kind of like bogged down with too much information. And yeah, it's, it's made my coaching life much easier since I've been able to remove all that mess. Thinking back to your, your earliest memories of, of when you were coaching, how would you describe yeah. 
your your team style of play or or how would you describe your coaching philosophy at that point i started coaching high school like my freshman year in college so i was uh 19 years old and i definitely you know stepped right into coaching like a player i viewed coaching very much like well this is how i do it why can't you do it like me and and i'll be honest there was you know very little context to like how how i wanted my team to play it was very much like how i wanted individuals to operate um very limited in how i kind of this is how i want my team to attack this is how i want my team to defend it was very much like you know you're this position and this is what i expect from you um from a tactical piece and, and what i like to see but it wasn't it wasn't anything beyond that um and and i think that kind of rooted in my my experience as a youth player i didn't feel like i i got that information i don't was never really trained in what my team is supposed to be doing from a, a larger perspective. It was all very individual and, and cause wasn't vastly different either. And so like many of us, we kind of take how we were coached and we, we put that into play right away as young coaches. And um, so I, I, I bet, you know, if I look at it, there was no recognizable style of play, you know, it was built on, you know, working really hard effort and moments of individual brilliance. But yeah, I don't think I could even, I, try to identify if there was a real like team-based idea for my earlier my early experiences and how would you describe your team today or your 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 philosophy today yeah i think you know how how we try to play and how we describe it is you know we're we're a possession-based team because that's the easiest thing for especially college level trying to talk to recruits or you know talking to players they understand the idea of possession as soon as you say that you know we value possession as you know as part of our game but we're definitely, you know, in a positional style of play. And that's where I'm in. I'm at right now is trying to just really wrap my head around positional play and how to we'll continue to understand that on a deeper level. But you know, right away, I would say we're possession-based. I often, you know, say soccer is like a sliding scale of styles. At one end is a possession-based. At the end, there's a more direct style. And I always say we're about as close to the, the end of the scale where possession-based is as possible. So um, really being able to understand the role of possession and what we want to do and, and how it affects you know, all phases of the game, obviously with the ball and without the ball. Michael, I'm, I'm curious. I kind of want to talk to you about the recruiting process. I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody on the podcast about that before, and I don't know how much you can or oh. can't say about it. Yeah, no, we can, yeah, we can definitely talk about it. Um, just to give you some, like my background is, you know, currently I coach division three women's soccer. Um, so we're looking at, you know, in the world of, of non-scholarship uh, soccer. And then I've been a head men's coach at the NAIA level. So then I've been in the NAIA world of scholarships. And uh, the two couldn't be more polar opposites uh, as far as um, how those two those two levels are, are are recruited and even the style of play and what you see. So yeah, we can definitely have a chat about it. So the the first thing that comes to mind is how how do you decide that you want to go after a certain player? Like like what what does a player need to present to you in order for for you to kind of for your ears to perk up and and to to get some interest in them. You know, and this is kind of where, you know, every every level has their, their different intricacies and how they how they view each player. You know, for us, um, you know, at the division three level and a place where the academic um the academics of the student athlete is, is almost just as is just as important or more important than their athletic abilities. We you know the first thing is is this a student that's gonna succeed in our academic environment? That's you know that's the step. The first step for us is making sure that this person is going to be successful in the classroom and that they're a good match for us on the academic side. And then obviously from the soccer side, you know when you get into the world of you know Division three non scholarship, 
uh, it becomes very difficult. It could become difficult to find, all right, I need a six. I'm going to go look out for, a, I need a good six and who can really move the game and control the tempo of the game. You know, it's more of, all right, maybe I have a girl who plays, you know, maybe a center back or an outside back, but she's really good technically. She sees the game well. Can I turn her into a six? Can I develop a six at our level? Uh, but yeah, so I mean, in an ideal world, you know, we're right now, if we're looking at my team based in the Midwest, there's not a lot of girls that are developed in systems and play or in environments that really match how we play. Um, and that's probably the biggest challenge. Like we'll be in Vegas in a couple of weeks. We were in Vegas a couple of weeks ago and girls from, you know, region four, so Southern California, Northern California tend to fit our style of play more. Um, so we've been kind of shifting our recruiting into that area. Um, but yeah, really it's, Academically, are they going to be able to be successful in our environment? Obviously, athletically, can they be successful? And do they want to be at Coe College, for example? Because, um, you know, we all know soccer can disappear in a minute um, with injuries and everything else that comes with it. So if that all goes away, is that student-athlete or is that, that person still going to be happy with where they're at? And uh, we try to get all those things to come together and create, you know, the right place, the right place and the right environment for that person. How how do you express your interest in a player, and I and and I guess it's what very, what, yeah. what what I really want to kind of get to is you know if you if you really 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 want a player and this player is you know being recruited by one or two or three other schools, like how how do you go about expressing that you know y- you are the best place for that player to to be? Yeah, we you know when we when we know they're a good fit in all those those departments we, we definitely reach out to them in, in any way we can you know it's um there's not one recruit that i would say is done in the same way so every year you know if we have eight new players there were all eight different processes that we we got to that that student athlete so you know anything from reaching out directly to that person oftentimes they reach out to us um which is a really great way because you know they have interest in your school uh we we go through club coaches high school coaches um, I go to and work ID camps. Um, however, we can get ourselves in front of that that prospective student athlete, um, we do it. And then, really, we just tell them about this is this is what you can expect from us. Uh, we don't really talk about it any other schools that they're looking at. We just tell them like this is what you can expect from us. We we rarely make any guarantees as far as like playing time. We just tell them that you know we're confident that you're going to grow as a person as a student, and we're going to make you a better player. Now, if that means you start every game from your freshman year on, or you know you get 15 minutes a game by the time you're a senior, they have no no guarantees of where you'll be at from playing time. It's more of, you know, this is what we think of you. We think we can really develop you and how we train and play, and um, we we think you're a fit for our environment. And we let that that hopefully stand for itself when it comes time for them to make a decision. I like that you mentioned that. I I recently had a conversation with. Um with Brian about when he was recruiting Ephra when Ephra was like seven years old and, and you know, one of the big concerns was playing time. Like if Ephra is going to come over, you know, what about playing time? And Brian's like, no, no guarantees, man. Like he's, you know, he's really good player, but no guarantees. So I think that's important for, for parents to to hear and and understand that, that. I mean, it sounds like it's, it's pretty consistent across all levels that, that nobody's, nobody's promising that. So. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a two way street. Like, you know, obviously the, the player has to meet you halfway. And if they're not willing to do, you know, if you know that they have potential, but if they're not willing to, you know, do their end of the deal, uh, you know, my hands are tied. There's only so much I can do for you. So um, I think that's an important thing that, you know, we'll actually tell a girl, like, we think, you know, 
you know, where you're at as a player, you, you could definitely impact us in a great way. But what whatever impact means to them is based on obviously how much they hold up their end of the deal. What's maybe the, the most important thing that parents need to know about the recruiting process from your angle? I think for us, yeah, I think parents need to just need to know that their, their kid needs to, to lead the, lead the process as much as possible. Um, it's their experience. Um, it's, it's them living at this, whatever campus they're going to. It's, it's important that their child is really driving the process. And I think parents have gotten better at that. I'll be honest. I, I get less emails that sound like they're coming from parents or text messages that sound like they're coming from parents. But I think that's important that, you know, um, what really let your, your child lead the, lead the process. And I know colleges, regardless of a scholarship or not, it's a big financial commitment. And I get that piece from a parental perspective, but, uh, as much as you can, let your really let your player drive it, and uh, or let your son or daughter drive that process. Because um, then, at the end, it's their decision, and and then they can then they can live live with it. Even if it's a if it's a poor decision after a year, they, it's at least their decision, and it's not mom or dad's or someone else's decision. Um, it's really helping them become an adult, understanding that you know they make decisions, and they have to then live with the consequences of their decisions. All right, I'm gonna hit the brakes on the recruiting, the recruiting uh, angle, and uh, I kind of, I'm actually just curious, what, what, uh, what are you most passionate about, man? Like, what, like, what are you, what are you interested in talking about? Because I know we we've kind of hinted back and forth, like, hey, let's you know get you on the podcast, and um, you know it's gonna be a good conversation. But I'm curious, like, like what did you maybe expect to talk about today, and 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 what can what else can we get into? No, I I think it's you know. It's interesting, you know, obviously having, you know, Mandy on the podcast before is, you know, where, for me, like where, where I'm personally located in the state of Iowa, it wouldn't, you would not look to it as the mecca of, of soccer as far as, you know, as far as things going on in the field and things you point to. I mean, we're definitely what I'd refer to as a soccer wilderness. And, but at the same time, I think there's just a ton going on across the United States that all of us in the middle of the country can get like kind of passed by. And I was so happy when Mandy, you know, made the trip out to California and was able to connect with you guys and, and really get herself into new environments because um, she's an example of just one person that really got her start in, in the state and was able to get out and now is doing good things in different places and, and has a lot of quality as a coach. And I think there's a lot of us um, in, in these flyover states that have a lot to bring to the conversation when it comes to, like, growing the game in the U.S. And we, uh, yeah, we often get kind of missed as you can say. So, um, yeah, that's for me, it's probably the most passionate thing is trying to get the idea. And that's why I think social media and the ability to share what's your work has been great is, you know, there's good coaches all across the country that are doing good things that just, you know, aren't being, aren't getting recognized for what they're doing. And, uh, and I think social media has obviously helped that, but I think, you know, the more voice we can give to those coaches, the better. I'm going to list off a, a couple problems that I, that I see as, you know, I, I see them frequently when people talk about these flyover states. Or I liked your your um, mentioning of soccer wilderness. I thought that was pretty unique. Um, but you know, obviously, distance between teams is is a big problem. Um, lack of development academy and ECNL teams in in these flyover states. Lack of mm-hmm. coaching education opportunities in in these areas. Um, Lack of numbers, I think, is is also frequently presented as a as a problem, like just not enough people playing or or coaching the the sport. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so those are, those are things that come to the front of my mind when I'm thinking about the, the struggles of being in, in these rural areas of the country. What are, what are some other things that you maybe think should be highlighted when it comes to the difficulties or the struggles of these areas? And, and maybe can, is there anything that, that, you know, that I've said or, or that is frequently said that is more of a myth than it is a fact? But, you know, I, to try to like put it in like, you know, how, what's helped me to really understand it is, you know, when you live in it, you don't know that you're in the wilderness, so to speak. That's a good um, point. And it's like, you just, when you're in it, you can't, you don't know that you just think, you know, you're doing the best that you can and you're really, you know, making big gains and, and the moment you're able to step outside of your little bubble is when you probably get the biggest like dose of reality. And there's a couple of experiences. Um, when I actually traveled to uh, Pennsylvania for my, well, it was the NSCA premier, but now United Soccer Coaches premier diploma. Um, I, I went out to the East Coast for it. And, and it's funny, you know, we, and then those are the days where, you know, when you're in a coaching course, you play like eight hours a day. And, and I was like 27 years old, 27, 28 years old. So I was young enough to where I could play all day. Um, and we, you know, we finished up with one of the days and one of the other coaches came up to me and was like, Hey, where are you from? And I said, you're from Ireland. He's like, you can play a little bit. And, and that's where you're just like, well, yeah, we have, you know, we do have soccer. Um, you know, we do have, it's at a decent level. Um, we have players that come from there, but that's just, it's pretty common for that to be like the, the, the initial response. Like, Oh man, like really? Um, same thing, uh, traveled with my college team to Cal Lutheran in California and we beat them and they were like, we just lost to a bunch of kids from Iowa. I'm like, I can't believe that. Um, and so like having these experiences of going to these different places where one, they would struggle to find us on a map and two to even imagine that we would, that we play and that we can play at a decent level. I think paints a pretty clear picture. Um, kind of like, and I don't think it's any different from a, a coaching perspective either. Uh, I think the views would be very similar from a coaching perspective. Do you guys, um, aside from, you know, being thought of as kind of like outcasts, like you guys don't even play for the people that know that you guys play, do you feel like you get labeled or yeah. Do you feel like you guys get labeled with a specific style? Like, uh, you, you guys are kind of, um, I don't, I can't think of the right word. I probably need another cup of coffee. Um, no, I I, uh, I actually describe Midwestern soccer to fit the stereotypes like it's agrarian, very agricultural. So, you know, work very hard. Um, we're going to like gut it out. We'll, you know, we'll win on those 50 50s and some set pieces and we're just going to outwork you. Um, <laughs> that's how like I try to stereotype um, soccer. And I, and that's just really not fair. And I, and I tell people like, that's not the case where, you know, I'm surrounded by really good coaches in our, in our, in the state. But again, you know, we, we don't have a DA, we don't have ECNL. So our top coaches in our state, where do they get seen? Um, they like regional leagues that no longer really have the same value that they once did, or, you know, here state cup is still like the pinnacle of the youth soccer experience. And it's, and that's just been, you know, been bypassed for several years now. And so it's still like it carries that, that idea because we never see the best coaches or it's really tough to get our best players in environments where they can be recognized for their quality. You know, I, a couple of years ago we took, uh, I was an O one ODP coach um, for the state and we went to players in Vegas and we did well. Um, didn't lose a game. We beat some, some strong teams out of region four. And, and the next year they put us like in the top division 
And, you know, we had players after that event that had, you know, invites to Real Salt Lakes Academy, Philadelphia Unions Academy. And, you know, that kind of speaks to like, we are, we do have some players and, and they're, they were surprised. It was the same thing. Like, Oh wow. Have you seen this IOODP team? They can play. Um, and I think that was a good, you know, we're, we're trying our best to get out and put our players in those environments, but yeah, it's tough. We have to travel. You know, our parents have to spend how much money to put our players in front of those environments just to, to try to break down some of the stereotypes that come with it. So it, I, I think you mentioned it, but is it, is, is it true that Iowa has no development Academy teams at all in the state? Yep, that's correct. So we, um, so currently how it works is, uh, you know, we have some sporting Kansas city affiliates, uh, in our state and some of those players will have access to go down, but they have to obviously move to the Kansas city area. Uh, and then on the girls side DA, uh, we would have to go a couple hours to the West to Omaha, Nebraska, and the same thing for ECNL. Uh, you know, I worked with a couple girls here just in where I'm at in the state of Iowa who, played ECNL, they had to go to Michigan, uh, Chicago, and both those girls are playing at Big Ten schools and it worked out for them, but not every family can swing that, you know, traveling to Michigan or Chicago on a weekly basis to get training and playing opportunities. One thing that comes to mind when, when you tell me that, you know, there isn't a team in the entire state, like there are not a, a development academy in the entire state, there also isn't an MLS team, you know, nearby. So what what represents Iowa? Like what represents um, your, your style, your philosophy and, and what do you, or what does anybody in Iowa gravitate to? Like how, how do you guys choose or how do you guys support a team if you know, the teams don't exist and nobody represents your, your culture? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah. I think <laughs> that's probably one of the bigger questions. I think, you know, from you know, from us, you know, obviously the, the power of sporting's um, affiliation through the state has helped. I mean, I would say like if you get to the Des Moines area, you know, they at least can can connect with Sporting Kansas City and, and that from an MLS perspective. But no, it, it's just very it it's tough, and I think that's part of what we're trying to do with the Olympic Development Program, which you know, in many states has has pretty much lost its relevance. Um, in the state, it still it still means a lot to us because that's how we can gather our best players and try to connect them through a vision of the game and, and creating training opportunities to, to help at least get our best players together and try to get them out in front of eyes that they're just not getting access to with the clubs. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation that the, you know, the power we still have ODP is still important to a lot of our players um, and what it, and what opportunities it's presented. But yeah, when we go to these events, we know we're not playing their best players. Um, you know, we're getting second, third, fourth tier possibly because of the role that the ODP program has in their state. And it's crazy, man, to think, you know, if a kid gets invited to an ODP camp in Southern California and a parent will ask me like, Hey, like, what do you think about this camp? I'm like, go ahead and light your money on fire. That's fine. Like, it's not going to, yeah. it's nothing for Southern California, but you look at, Alabama, for example, right, and and Chris Richard, uh, Chris Richards, you know his his way out was ODP, and and you know Alabama is another state that doesn't have a development academy program. So it's really it's really interesting to see the different dynamics in all these different areas and how each, um, not only just state but every community how how every community is served so differently, and and it's man, it, it in in my opinion, it's because 
of the just the, the fractured nature of our entire system it's like there there isn't there isn't one pathway that makes sense um and, yeah. and then you get all these you get all these competing organizations that 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 present themselves as the pathway and it's just like uh, I, I don't know but it, different stuff works for for different people i guess yeah and i think that it, and it makes it tougher on the kids they don't know where they sit and you know i I try to, you know, talk with my assistants about this and just other kids. It's like, what does it really mean to be the best player in Iowa? Or what does it mean to be state cup champions in Iowa? And, you know, where does that fit on a national scale, let alone a global perspective? I mean, it sits pretty low. And how, you know, obviously we're not going to, you know, we're going to celebrate success when you have it at whatever level, but are we also delivering a little bit of, like, truth? And when there really isn't a clear pathway or a clear, like, um, route for the kids, they, they don't know where it sits or of its importance anymore and they um good bad or indifferent sometimes they, they get inflated on their ideas and themselves and then obviously that kind of stunts their growth as players so no i think the lack of clarity makes it really tough also to like point to a kid and be like really you know where are you at in your development you've got a way to go because we're, we don't have anything to point to yeah having that that context is very important and it's actually something that brian's talked a bit about or not a bit about a, a lot about over the years it's like hey like it's one thing to be the best development academy, but where do we sit on a global scale? And so he's really pushed for more international competition, you know, just to get a, 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 some sort of a reading on where they are at with other top teams. And, and of course, you know, this usually comes in a tournament format or in a friendly format. So again, you have to kind of put, you know, a certain lens on when you look at it, but yeah. you're able to, you're able to get a, a, a better idea of where everything sits. And I think that that's really, really important. And a lot of times parents don't have, um, parents don't have that context. Players certainly don't have that context. And, and, and I don't know if players, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds should be burdened with having to think about that. But, um, yeah. but, but it's, but it's think- very, very important for coaches and administrators specifically to understand that context and to really, really know, where they sit and and yeah I, I i i don't know i could i could probably talk about that for a while yeah well i think you know i got lucky just from a youth and i you know i was trained by a brazilian gentleman for most of my youth career and we had the opportunity to to go to brazil as a young player and you know it wasn't like some big international tournament but you know he took us to sao paulo and we were able to play against these brazilian teams and yeah we you know it was one of those ones you thought you were good where you're at you go down there and you're like wow um, I am so far, <laughs> so far from being good, um, you know, as a team, as an individual and, and what it did to open your eyes. And it obviously, you know, there's cultural impacts, but like what it did to how I viewed the game, but like it put us in our place and, you know, and I'll give credit to them as well. You put us in, we were playing in men's leagues at U16 and U17 against, um, Des Moines, actually, Iowa was a big place for a lot of refugees coming from the civil war in Yugoslavia. So we had, you know, Bosnians, Croatians, you know, Serbians, and those guys came, you know, straight off out of the war and, and made three or four you know teams in our community and we played them and these guys had legitimately come right out of fighting and now we're playing like 16 american kids who thought they were good and they taught us several lessons about the game and um you know i was able to get those types of experiences at a young age and be like yeah i you know being the best player on my team in iowa doesn't really mean much in, in the large the big picture and I, and I just don't think our kids get that. I think, you know, I don't see, 
I don't see youth clubs and our communities putting their kids out there in these leagues against these adult players. Like it just, you know, parents wouldn't want to see what could happen in those environments. So it's just interesting. Like I got, I was just kind of in that, that I got lucky that I was put in a place where I, I got to see this and be like, kind of put my place a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think it's getting tougher and tougher for kids to, to be able to really experience that and get out of um, their safe youth soccer bubble. One of the things we're starting to see more and more of in, in Southern California specifically, but um, I'm seeing it other places as well is um, teams coming over and playing in, in these youth tournaments, like yeah. Real Madrid's teams coming over, Porto's teams coming over that the, a lot of the, the teams from Mexico are coming up to Southern California and, and you know, playing in, the, in these youth tournaments. And, and it's just, it, I, I think that it's very, very good. I think that it's very, very good for coaches and for teams to understand what else is out there. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to the game that I watched in Orange County. It was Sporting KC, ironically. And I think it was Porto. And they just wiped Sporting KC like off the map like they're like sporting kc it was like they weren't even on the field and Mm -hmm. the parents from sporting just they they couldn't understand they did not understand what was happening and and they were yelling at the referee they were yelling for their kids to try harder and and it was just apparent that 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 the that the parents didn't understand that there was a massive gap in quality and porto ended up going on to win the tournament that might have even been the final um, that I, that I was watching and, you know, just, just really, really, really amazing skill by those players. But what it really highlighted to me, and I remember thinking about this and I think it was when I was actually down South taking my C license. Um, it, it just, it highlighted that we have a lot of work to do on the education front and specifically with educating parents because, yeah. A lot of times, and you 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 hit on it a, a moment ago, saying you know what is what does it mean to be the best team in Iowa? And so a lot of a lot of times, you know, people will think, oh, well, I'm the best in this area, and then they go to another like a hotbed like Southern California, and they get their asses kicked. And it's like, well, you know, that's what it's like to be the best team in Iowa, but it's nowhere near what it's like to be the best team in Southern California, or even mm-hmm. in the middle of the pack team in Southern California for for a lot of a lot of areas. So. Yeah, and I, and I just think it's helpful. I mean, I think that's that's what we need more of, and, and and I think that's kind of what we're trying to do from you know give our players those experiences. But I think it just happens too late in the kids' development. I think yep. you know if you're giving it to them at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, you know, I don't I don't know if we're able to really kind of right the ship. Um, though it's either a one off or like oh we just had a bad day or you know they can justify that. But if you can start giving them these experiences at a younger age, and like you said the parent education comes into that, you've got years where you can start to shape training environment and what, you know, how that shifts expectations to the kids. So, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, for us, I think that's the biggest challenge is how do we give those kids those, those experiences? Because we'll talk about it. Like, you know, regional and a regional tournament is still, you know, it's way down in the rungs now of youth soccer, but the teams from Iowa will go there and still they'll get roughed up. And then, you know, you're, you're looking at this is like the second, third team in that area, and we, you know, we struggle against them, but we'll go back into our own safe bubble and, you know, compete against each other and then be the best team. And where's the drive to really kind of push on and, and be something beyond that? Um, so, no, I think it's just one of the, the struggles that we face when, you know, we feel like we have so much that we're not 
allowed to access from from the levels of play perspective. Do well, I don't know if it, that's kind of an asshole question to ask. I was going to ask, like, do do the players realize it? Do the players realize that they're not that, that they're not up to you know Southern California standard or or Miami standard or? I, I you know I, I think there's some. Yeah, I think it's it's probably a, a various degree. Uh, I think there's some that are able to see it and recognize it, and then um, you know there's some that are, are just going to be blissfully ignorant to it, just because. I think it takes a, a pretty good understanding of the game to understand some of the gaps um, in their performance and where they're at from the development. So, um, you know, if if they always think, you know, for example, just a crude, you know, analogy, you know, if I'm always the biggest, fastest, stronger kid, you know, maybe my understanding of the game is limited, but I'm still I'm still stronger than those kids from Southern California, or you know, I, I'm still, you know, in some degrees, I'm better, um, and they can't really put their mind around the game beyond that. Um, I think that was, you know, even when we played, uh, Fullerton Rangers with a, a, a team already BT played and, um, we were vastly more athletic, but boy, those kids just played the game at a level of understanding that was just beyond what our kids were used to on a day in and day out basis. And to get them to see that, and recognize it. I mean, it, I don't think we could do it in that 80 minute game that we played to try to get them to understand it, but. No, I, I think it's it's tough. I think you'll have some that will get it, and you'll have some that, no matter how many times they see it or experience it, you're just going to fall on deaf ears. And it's not even to say that you know that that, that there aren't great players like Josh, Josh um, Sargent is is a great example of a player that you know f- off the beaten path. I don't know how else to describe like where where he where he was from. It's like yeah. it's, it's not you know a hotbed. It's not uh, a traditional path to the top. Um, where where he was from, and and then look where he is now. You know, starting starting Bundesliga games like that's freaking insane. Well, yeah, and and I'll be honest, like St. Louis and in, in our scope and our in the Midwest, I mean, they are they are a hotbed for us. They're you know the number of players they have, the passion, and the history of the game in St. Louis is is deep. And and I learned that when I was recruiting in St. Louis, and like how many people play and how big it is, and still from like a a nationwide perspective, they're they're not. Stops. But in our area, I mean, they're they're who you look to: Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City. Those are for us. Those are the big hubs, and and then you put them in that big, you know, compare them to Southern California, and they're not even close. And then obviously, you know, looking at the rest of the world, <laughs> it's even worse. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely some interesting conversations. One thing that we don't talk enough about as well is that we aren't necessarily competing or players need to understand they're not competing with just other American kids or American players for these spots on college rosters or professional teams, you know, in in the development Academy, it's, it's, I would say, you know, 95% American kids or American players. Right. Yeah. Um, But when you, when you jump up and and you're playing college or you're playing professionally, especially you're no longer, you're no longer competing with just Americans. You are competing with the world for these spots and mm. not not knowing your competition, so not having that context of what all these other players in the world can bring to this game, puts you at a severe disadvantage. And if you don't understand that, you have an unrealistic idea of what you need to do in order to secure that spot on that roster as well. And so, you know, going abroad and trying out for a Division Two team or a Division Three team in Spain or in Germany or in the Netherlands or whatever you experience that like 
okay, like, you know, here are 40 people that are, you know, fighting tooth and nail for this spot. And I'm probably not going to get it because I'm not that good. But at the professional level, they are also fighting for the spots in American soccer too. And I think if I remember correctly, like there's this season, especially is the smallest percentage of American players in MLS in its history. And somebody put out an article the other day. I think it was, um, I know Tra- Travis Clark does it, and he he did it all last season. But I think Paul Kennedy put out something a, a, like a tweet the other day saying, you know, of all the starting lineups in Major League Soccer, you know, six out of the uh, of the starting eleven for most teams were non U.S. eligible players. And it's like that's very important context for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Well, because it, it's it's a it's a global it's, yeah the global game, and I think like. Having spent time in the NAIA, which is, I think, one of the hidden gems of college soccer, like the quality of players and the quality of play at that level is just, it's awesome. I enjoyed coaching it and seeing the quality of the players that I saw, like, just changed a lot of my perspective. But, yeah, when we, you know, I take a, I trot out an 18-year-old boy from St. Louis and we're going to go play, you know, a 23-year-old freshman from from Colombia or Brazil or, or Serbia or England or, and, or you name it, and, I have my eight-year-old boy who's played against American kids all his life, and then you've got a guy who's played, you know, second division, but didn't work out for him, and now he's going to come down and play college soccer somewhere in a small town in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. I, yeah, I mean, their level of experience, what my kid has experienced, are so vastly different, and you can just tell the moment, you know, that the game gets going and, and how much learning uh, our players have to do, and like you said, just the recognition of these these players are they want any opportunity, and it and they're and coaches are learning that they'll take them and um, they'll take the best player for the job. And if it's an American, awesome. If not, you know, it doesn't really matter where you're from. NAIA is the route that Christian Ramirez ended up going, right? Is that correct? Uh, I think so. Did, did he spend some time in the NAIA? I'm trying to, I think it, so. I, like, even in our, like, the conference I coached in, there was at least a couple, I think there was a couple guys that spent time in the last after. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just a level that uh, the rules are, can be a little bit more flexible as far as past playing experience and what, you know, what you can have for eligibility. So yeah, it, it definitely, it was a, it was a quick, quick, uh, quick education for me being a 29 year old head coach and the quality of the players and the quality of the coaches. And at that level was, was a, a good learning experience. That's for sure. I have a, I have a pretty naive question. Is NAIA governed at all by NCAA? No, so, yeah, two separate, um, two separate governing bodies. So the NAI is actually based in Kansas City. Hmm. Hmm. I'm just thinking of how they could, you know, potentially be part of like a, a soccer revolution in this country. Like if they wanted to offer more lax rules and allow kids to go to school and and you know still provide these opportunities for for players to to yeah. know, participate in team sports. Like they could they could really flip it on its head if they really wanted to compete against NCAA. Yeah, their training rules are, I mean, it's awesome. To be honest, like you're you're given, I think it was 24 weeks to train in the year. So let's say, you know, the season takes 12, 12, 13 weeks. And then on the back end, you get another 10 to 11 weeks or 12 weeks to train your team. And there's no limitations on the frequency. Or you just did a train. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, to really develop and grow as a player and, and keep playing, it was, yeah, it definitely provided those opportunities. There wasn't as many limitations as the NCAA, as the NCAA provides. What about the what about the requirements to become a coach? Because this is something that's, you know, it's really bummed me out over the years, and I never went and finished my college degree. But that rules me out from coaching in any 
capacity in NCAA. And I'm, I'm just curious, are the rules or the requirements to coach at NAIA anything similar to that? I, no, I, I think it's, it's purely based on the institution and what they want to set forth for, uh, for the position they're looking to fill. Huh. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of, it's more of, I think, like you said, it's pretty common from an NCAA perspective that they're expecting some type of bachelor's degree, but um, I think the NAIA is very much more of, you know, however the school wants to fill that role. And I know I, the school I coached at, our volleyball coach didn't complete her, her bachelor's degree. She was an Olympian. Oh, um, was like an All-American as a freshman, competed in multiple Olympics, was a world player of the year, but doesn't have a bachelor's degree. And and she's she's doing okay. She's finding, you know, the, the opportunity to coach. <laughs> That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's like one of those things. If like if you have enough relevant experience, like does your degree really matter? I don't know. If you're a friggin' master of it, um, what I I, I even think that there's when it comes to teaching at the college level, like if you have enough relevant experience in the field, you don't need to have your teaching credential. Like you can just skip to just, you know, being a professor. If I remember correctly, I don't know, but don't take yeah, my word for I'm it because to, I'm not a college educated person. Yeah. There's some accreditation situations when it comes to that. So I teach a little bit as well. Um, and so I think it, again, it comes down to like accreditations for courses and certain things, but okay. yeah, I think what's, you know, what's the best way to get information relevant information to your students um sometimes that's not always through a degree mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right um we got four minutes till the pregame show kicks off i really want to see steve nash and, and Stuart holden and and those guys talk about <laughs> soccer um, i know you can't miss that <laughs> but i, I want to make sure i ask uh you know my famous my famous question that i've asked everybody now so what uh what do people need to know from from your vantage point in the middle of America, um, what what's the what's yeah, the stuff that people need to know? I think you know my biggest thing is we need to stop selling our players short, um, and I think uh, this is something that I think I go on and why how I like the way I want my teams to play is really I think that um, how many times I've, I've had conversations with coaches saying like ah my players are and this is something that I know Gary's blogged about is like ah my players aren't good enough to play a possession-based style, they play out from the back, and, and they lean on their players as the reason why they can't do something versus just being able to, like, step up and, and, and learn and study, work at it. You know, don't sell your players short. You know, I had an important, you know, conversation with a club coach about one of my teams, and it was just like, no, I, I just, they just that's just not them. They've never learned how to do it. I said, well, what if I just teach them? And we spend time doing it. And, um, and they're like, well, you know, you might – there might be some mistakes. There might be some, you know, goals given up. We said that's part of the learning process, but aren't we selling the kids short by even trying? And I think um, regardless of the style, I think that's it. I think sometimes we lean on the kids' shortcomings versus really trying to stretch the cho- our players and then obviously stretch ourselves as coaches. I think the two of them go hand in hand. Are we willing to to learn and really kind of like figure out the best way to, to teach, our, teach our players something and at the same time really push them um, to understand the game on a deeper level? Or is it just... You know, are we just so worried about the mistakes along the way that we we don't really ever put ourselves in those situations? So, I mean, for me, that's like how I view it. Like, you know, I have this idea how I want my teams to play, and, and how high of a level can I take it? Can I keep developing my my style of play and keep pushing it and, and making mistakes and learn how to 
continue to teach it better and keep pushing our players through with it. So hopefully at the end, when the players leave the field, they feel like they got a real soccer education. And if they choose to be coaches, that'd be great if they could continue the, the, the path. But if not, they at least leave knowing that they, they really got a good soccer education and a good understanding of the game. I really like that answer, man. That's a really, that's a really, really good answer. And I'm mean, going to, I want to piggyback on it because it's something I wrote down yesterday, actually, that I think coaches need to give themselves more credit. And a lot of times coaches will, and I was tweeting about it earlier, earlier, um, before we, we started the conversation. A lot of times coaches will, will think they are not ready or they don't know enough or, you know, they're not experienced in this, so they can't teach it or, or whatever. It's like guys like, or, and girls, um, just believe in yourselves a little bit more. Like go try it. Like, you know, ha- have the confidence in yourself to, to break out of your little shell or your bubble and, and, and coach it. Like just, just go do it. Yeah. And a lot of times coaches, I think to, yeah, to piggyback exactly off what you said, they sell themselves short and in, in the, the, uh, you know, the byproduct that, that comes from that is, yeah, you sell your player short too. And so I'm really, I'm really happy that you brought that up. I think that's a really important point, man. Yeah, I just and I've heard it like the same thing in, in podcasts, and you know, and it, it becomes cliche because it's very easy to be like everybody wants to be like Guardiola or this or that. It's like it's not that. It's just hey, you know, how do you see the game, and and how do you best teach that to your players? And don't don't limit what you can teach them just because you have these preconceived notions about their abilities. So yeah, yeah it just it, it, it bothers me when I see it all too often. I'm sitting here shaking my head, man. I 100% agree. It's a very good way to put it. Uh, well, awesome. Where, where can people connect with you on social media and where can they find all that stuff that you were talking about at the very beginning, all your writing and the videos and, and all that? Yeah, you know, Twitter's probably the best place. Uh, like we talked about, I get I get lost too often in the wormhole of Twitter, but um, Twitter uh, at Coach Crunch, P-R-U-N-T, is probably the best way. Um, it's just given me so much from an education perspective that I'm always open to share that information with other coaches and, and at least I need something to challenge me and get better. So it's, it's proven to, to do that for me. What's so funny. I, I just, I just realized we never did like an introduction or anything. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have to do that in the actual introduction of the podcast. So you'll have to, I might have to be, um, I might have to text you and, and get some other information just to make sure I don't, I don't butcher uh, your background or, or I even butcher how to say your name. So. <laughs> oh, no problem at all. Um, all right, man. Well, uh, thank you for making time for it and just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. We're here for you if you ever need anything. So feel free to reach out. Um, and yeah, no, and thanks. Like, I, I really appreciate it. Like I said, I've, you know, been a part of like, I think it was like 2009 or 2000 when I first came across when he was doing like blogs on like college games. And yeah, it's, really, it's great to see how it's grown and, um, and what it's done for coaches. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. 
the program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review. And I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.